0: This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them.
1: And hello and welcome to Shenandoah Down Under All Confederate Pirates Save the Whales uh, with Rob and Mob. I'm Rob. I'm Mob. That's Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. One, one day we'll, we'll get all of the, the variations of our introduction in, in, in order and, and get it right but uh, yes, yes. Well we've a long way to go on the journey Rob I'm we, sure so we'll get it eventually. We do have a long way to go on the journey, and in fact um but we didn't we didn't record an episode uh last week because you were on a on a mission of mercy that was also retracing some of the steps of the shenandoah uh, albeit overland yeah, I went on an unexpected journey um without a
0: pocket handkerchief, just like Bilbo Beckins. <laughs> i was uh I was obliged to go over to western australia which uh is the other far side of the continent and uh there meet my uncle, who had uh, unfortunately dislocated his hip and uh, drive him back to, uh, to Melbourne. That's quite a journey, too. It took me uh, six days, and that included one of our recording days. I would have liked to have uh, perhaps you know, phoned in from somewhere crossing the Nullarbor Plane, but it just wasn't possible.
1: Well, yeah, I think because um, yes, the Nullarbor Plane does not have 4G, it has 3G. So uh, yes, and, and I remember one time you did call me. You had to be basically within line of sight of the, uh, the telecommunications tower. Yes, that was. We were actually in. Um, we were about
0: twenty-five miles beyond the arse end of nowhere at that point, <laughs> which was actually a, a place called Goon Gary, far above the uh, mines in Kalgoorlie, where my great grandfather, who was a a gold fossicker, spent the last thirty years of his life living in a tin shed, hoping to strike the mother load, hoping to strike the mother load, and. Um Which he clearly didn't because this recording is not being done from my family yacht. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was a a very interesting journey. Um, Fremantle is where I started, and and that's a a major port on the the west coast of Australia. It's quite possible that the Shenandoah may have considered uh, putting in there, and as Mm. as it is, they didn't. They then sailed... uh, to Melbourne, as we know, and to do that, you have to go past what's known as the Great Australian Bite, and that's the um, bit that looks a bit like a bite.
1: Yes, yes. Funny about that because it's, it's actually spelled B-I-G-H-T. It's not spelled B-I-T-E. Yes. But yes. yes, every schoolboy in and schoolgirl in Australia has made the connection that yes, it <laughs> yes. sounds like a bite and it looks like a bite. Yeah, yeah. A big bite. It's, big bite. Uh, it's very long, um, and.
0: One of the most amazing sights there, it's it's if it's an experience to see, is there are a few points where the road comes the what's the, the famous air highway comes right down to where the coast is. And the coast pretty much consists at one point of Sheer cliffs for eight hundred kilometers so that 's about five hundred miles of sheer cliffs
1: and and many many ships sailing from Europe to um, australia in the in the nineteenth century and and remember that um, for quite a bit of the uh, the second half of the nineteenth century um, Australia was um, what uh the klondike uh and what um california had had also been um the the absolute center of gold mining across the world so very very many ships uh sailed to australia and very very many horrible things happened to those ships because um basically yes if you if you run up against the the great australian bite or if you run up against the coast um, really, anywhere from Fremantle to Melbourne, um, you're liable to run into into horrible cliffs. And uh, there was one uh, one ship, the Lockard, which um, which came to grief um, in Victoria and and ran up against um, some some very nasty cliffs where two people survived: a seaman and a young lady. And the seaman carried the young lady up the cliffs the next day, and, and then most ungallantly didn't marry her. Uh, but uh, you know, nevertheless, had saved her life. So it was an absolute graveyard, the Australian coast. And, and
0: that was in Victoria, where at least they had some farms to yes. do, to, to, to hunt out. Uh, further back on the Bight, there's nothing. Uh, above it is the Nullarbor Plain, yes. which is a flat, treeless plain about the size of Great Britain. Yes, yes. And uh, I'm not sure how many people were living back then. There, there were Aboriginal tribes that lived there. But at one point in Western Australia now, you go through its very own time zone. I didn't know this. There's there's a time zone in Western Australia
1: called Central Western Australian Time. Did you know this? I, I've never heard that, and that's probably because it doesn't actually impinge on people a whole lot, and the kangaroos no. probably don't care. No, uh,
0: <laughs> it actually is a time zone that uh, some of the isolated communities there have set up themselves, and it affects a grand total of 200 people. Well, I, th- I, I had to wind back my watch for that, <laughs> which, which really screwed up. trying to ring—I uh, had to ring someone overseas at the time. Um, yeah, with uh, with shipwrecks, I've, I've just got a list here of uh, shipwrecks that have happened uh, in the, on the South Australian side of the Great Australian Bite, I've just—I've just got this from the internet. No, I'm not going to read out the list. I'm just going to read out the fact that there were one, two, three, four, five. Six ships, all just called the Albatross, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that to sink or founder or crash uh, in the uh, in the nineteenth century, and that's just the very start of the list. I um, could I could keep going and going
1: and going. I I, I always thought that that albatrosses were a. a, a Superstitious symbol of great bad luck for sailors. But at so least why, ever since the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Yeah, yes. Why? Why on earth would you call your ship the albatross But yes, I, I think it's asking whole, for trouble. I aren't think you? you're, you're asking for trouble. And I, I would not have been on the sixth ship called the albatross that set sail for uh, from from England to Australia. I no, said, no, no, no. That's, thank that's you. That's not right. a good name.
0: So the Shenandoah, what it did was it it kept well away. From well, the, well, the now, now of the bite.
1: they they did keep well away from the bite. But in order to do that, and in order to follow the trades, um, you often had to get very close to Antarctica. You had to go down to what were known as the Roaring Forties, and they were called that for a reason. Yes, yes, so yes, they they would they would have you know fantastic winds. But um, if anything went wrong with your ship, you were you were thousands of miles away from from any possible help and and um, the
0: nearest land was the uh, the cliffs of the great australian bite yes or, or, or,
1: or, or antarctica on the other side yeah, yeah. A, yeah.
0: another great feature of the uh, the sea off the great australian bite is that um just like the land above it it's a marine desert because there are no rivers that flow into the great australian bite uh all of that region in uh, the Australian outback, there the rivers actually flow inland until they to, just fizzle out into yeah, the. To, to the
1: extent that there are rivers at all, because it's well, the again, seasonal, it, it, the it, seasonal it, rivers, I yeah, should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah,
0: but they flow inland, so there's no alluvial runoff. So the the, the Great Australian Bite is a is a marine desert that um, is cheerfully shark infested. So really you didn't want to have a shipwreck there did you rob Oh, no
1: no just like no.
0: say the albatross that was uh, in um stricken uh, in 1880 or the albatross that was <laughs> struck a reef in uh, 1874
1: or, or the the albatross or the albatross
0: <laughs> that was uh, lost at wedge island in ni- oh 1937
1: not 19- oh okay okay so this is obviously yeah yeah yes yeah. Oh, OK, so, so so we're losing ships there until you know, until the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and finally, uh,
0: the, the coast of Victoria, as you say, has also got uh, um, exciting cliffs on it as well. And uh, just another uh, naval anecdote is the fact that my mother loves going on cruises. Yes. And uh, she managed to convince all of her friends at this uh, gated retirement community that she moved into who'd never been on a cruise before to go on this special cruise and it was a cruise that ran from the city of Adelaide back to Melbourne, which is not a very uh, long distance as far as cruising goes. What had happened is the cruise ship had a whole lot of passengers go off in Adelaide and then obviously to make a bit of extra revenue, they take some people on board in Adelaide and you go for three days to Melbourne. She said, oh, that way they'll be able to experience what cruising is like. I said, oh, okay, how much was it? She said it was $99 for three days.
1: That's not, okay,
0: that's not a bad price. Except I said, they are going to experience cruising, Mum. She said, why? Well, I said, you know, that coast is not called the shipwreck <laughs> coast for nothing. So what you're going to be doing is, um, as soon as they go out into the Bight and they come sailing down Strait, one of the roughest patches of, uh, yes. of uh, water in the world... They're going to experience, you know, violent tossing, retching <laughs> seasickness. It'll be great for them. Well, however, my mother, who is one of the luckiest people I know, she of course went, and it was as calm as a yes, millpond, as yes, my dad described it when yes. they uh,
1: when they went on that three day cruise. Oh, uh, well, ah uh, well. So, yeah, we are we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but um. One of the one of the reasons um, that was quite fortuitous, I think, that you uh, replicated the Shenandoah's voyage on land um, was that um, one of the one of the things where, where, one of the things I, I like about this project is w- the way in which the voyage of the Shenandoah seems to impact and, and on so many other th- history is connected, and mm-hmm. um, uh, as. As the Shenandoah was preparing to head off um, across uh, towards Australia, the um, South Australia was experiencing the Great Drought of 1864-1865. and mm-hmm. given that uh, Victoria is uh, the next state to um, uh, South Australia, uh, Victoria was was also experiencing a drought. So, and this led to. Um, a, the surveyor of South Australia, the
0: Surveyor General, in fact, Surveyor
1: General, uh, yep. Mr. Goider, who um, was also uh, ended up surveying the Northern Territory. So he was a he was a very busy man. He was one of those um, Victorians who lived for work, uh, which which was uh, quite often to his cost. Because at uh, one point when he was off surveying uh, the Northern Territory or something, his uh, his wife gave birth to twins who died. And she never recovered and eventually committed suicide, at which point he married her sister, as, as you do. As, as but, one did in those days. As one yes. did in those days, because no doubt it was his duty. But, um, so the, the great drought of 1864-1865, um, the South Australian government went to Mr Goida as their surveyor and they said... Work out at what point? Because obviously the top of South Australia is desert, but the, the bottom of South Australia is, is quite pleasant and nice, and the Adelaide Hills are, uh, are very lovely, and the Barossa Valley, to this day, grows, grows beautiful grapes and wine. So they said to Mr Goida, work out at what point people should not uh, grow crops. And uh, in the late 1860s, uh, following the uh, drought of 1864, 1855, he went out and he did his survey... And he decided that crops should not be grown at any point that um, had less than 30 inches of rain per year, which quite frankly doesn't sound like an awful lot, really, not really to, no. to, to grow to grow crops. Um, and so about, about 1870, he, he came out with this line. It's, it's called Goides
0: 1865, line. actually. He'd surveyed it in only two months, which oh. is a pretty impressive effort
1: that's um, that is a very impressive effort
0: yes. given that uh, it took me uh, <coughs> four days to drive across South Australia in a car i can 't imagine uh walking across it or going by horse
1: uh, yeah i think I think in two months he would have had to have uh, to have gone by horse um, well yeah as i said he was, he was a devil for work mr goido but the problem was um, so the 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 goidel line was was introduced uh it was popularized. And then in the late 1860s and early 1870s, there was a run of good years of rainfall and people started calling it Goida's Line of Folly and people cheerfully went out and built farms way out into the South Australian You desert. mean to
0: say that people were ignoring climate scientists <laughs> even back then? Well,
1: they were, and I'll tell you why. It's because they had a, they had a theory of climate change... In the 19th century, which
0: was barking
1: mad, which, which I believe. Is, it, was, it was barking mad. It was a theory of climate change that had its greatest um, um, uh, currency in South, in Australia, but also in um, in America, in, in what was then known as the, the Great American Desert, which had another name later, which we'll get to. But the theory was theory of climate change was that rain follows the plough. Rain, Rain follows, follows the plough. So if you went out, and, and it was, I think to a certain extent it was religious, because if one gives... Well, God, it's, it's not really scientific. Well, no, 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 but, they, but it was also to a certain extent scientific, because they thought that if you went out and you burnt fuel, and you would burn fuel basically by cutting down whatever trees happened to be there but burning fuel would increase the humidity which would bring down the rain which meant that you could grow crops uh-huh. and mind you as a theory of climate change in fact we are now saying that, that if you burn fuel as in carbon as in oil um, you will cause climate change and, and one of the things about that might in fact be a, an increase in humidity but, but that, that will not be good but I, I, I just found it fascinating that, that they had this, a theory of climate change in the 1860s that was completely barking mad and they scoffed at mr Goida and they said oh my yeah you know, this, this is Goida's line of folly and everybody went out and built their their great big farms and and, um,
0: and you know what well, on my journey at yes. one point we actually drove down what's called the Goida highway yes and the number of abandoned <laughs> farms and ruined homesteads that you can see way there above the goida line is quite amazing in fact it really wasn't until the 18 sorry the 1980s that uh, there were methods that were developed that meant you could actually try farming above that line so it stood the test of time for a very
1: long time and and i also i i feel that yes people have managed to push farms up there using great big farms and and very intensive um you know to Big farming, basically. But, uh, yes, let, well, best of luck to them. Uh, let, let, but uh, but, it, but Goida's, Goida's line then stood absolutely the test of time uh, till till the current day, except in isolated instances. So it does go to show that, that, um, yeah, that, that, they, that the scientists do tend to know what they're talking about, and uh, rain follows the plough did not turn out to work um it was tried uh, rain follows the plough plow was also tried as i said in america uh-huh. and um the grapes of wrath is, is is all about oh no, that takes place in, in the great american dust bowl, dust bowl isn't yes, it and i'm yes. sure
0: that was given that name for a reason yes, too.
1: yes because the rain followed the plough for a few good seasons and uh once all the topsoil had been washed down down the down the down the river uh, the rain stopped following the plough, and uh, the dust bowl eventuated. Now then, uh, Michael, uh, 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 after we've we've got through your your, your adventures of last week, uh, what what precisely has has been happening uh, 150 years ago this but this November? Well, on the Shannon, well, actually, uh, not very much. <laughs>
0: In <laughs> fact, if we if we have a look at William Whittle's uh, journal, a memorable cruise which we've been looking at, where he's got his ship's log, this section of the cruise is actually titled. I wish we could catch another Yankee.
1: I wish we could catch another Yankee. Although I believe there, there were some e- e- epochal developments of Mr Whittle himself, as in he didn't die.
0: Yes, uh, if you remember in our last broadcast, Mr Whittle was eating a uh, fruit a fruit pie. And yes. uh, the cook, before they got their new cook, uh, the person who made the pie had broken a bottle and um, poor Mr Whittle had eaten some broken glass. And at the moment... I believe the glass is still slowly making its way through uh, his internal works, or at least that's what he
1: believes. And I, I believe also at some point during uh, late November, he also uh, decided that he would uh, give up smoking. He did, it. yes. And
0: I th- if you, if you look at what he he says about it here in his journal, I think the two are connected.
1: Ah, oh, right. So he had probably had a. a realized that, that if he had gone to meet his maker as a smoker of tobacco uh, you know he might have been sent to yes. another place yes he says that
0: uh, he says that uh, on the 18th of november he said he felt today very much better and came to the conclusion it was the excessive use of tobacco which was injuring him and he determined to stop both chewing and smoking. Oh, chewing and smoking. At at the same time, probably. He took all his tobacco and gave it to his messmates, and then he's going to do his best to break the chains of slavery. That's a very interesting phrase (laughs) for a confederate. Uh, And also a very bad (laughs) phrase, really. Uh,
1: Yeah. Well, uh, to give up chewing and smoking, because I I myself actually gave up smoking in, I think, 2007, but uh, the modern version of chewing tobacco, which is um, chewing nicotine, chewing gum, I managed to give that up four four months ago, and uh, it was not pleasant. And I think probably the last thing you need if you're a seaman on board a Confederate warship, which is busy pressing crews from every ship it's captured, I think the last thing you need is for your executive officer to be giving up smoking. Yes, right? because um, given they're not actually
0: capturing too many ships at this moment and everyone's getting a bit frustrated it appears that Mr Whittle is uh, pretty much taking his frustration out on the crew. Yeah,
1: that, that, yeah, there was tricing. Tr- tricing. Yeah, what is tricing? Right? Know, tricing sounds to me it's a little bit like um, waterboarding in that it's a torture that's not meant to be a torture but really is a torture and uh, tricing was never an accepted US Navy practice but it came about when whipping Whipping was outlawed because, of course, in the early 19th century, if, if a man, you know, what did you do with a drunken sailor? Well, you'd probably whip him. And you know, you'd get 50 lashes with the cat from the bosun. The cat was out of the bag and away you went. The cat was out of the bag and away you went. But um, then, uh, I think in the 1840s or the 1850s, um, you know, the, it was decided that whipping was, was so 18th century and um, so it was disallowed. But meant that, you know, they they needed something to replace it. So, um, tricing was the act of hanging you by your thumbs from the ceiling so that your toes barely touched the ground. So you could take some of your weight upon your feet, but, um, not a whole lot. Because if you had to take all of of your weight on on your thumbs, you'd end up, Mm. your thumbs would break, I imagine. well, it's interesting that uh, he tries it out here
0: on... Um, they actually got... If you remember, they were able to, only able to ship one person who was happy to shovel coal. They've okay. only got one loader at the moment because yes. that would have to be one of the worst jobs on board the ship. So they decided that they were going to order the prisoners they had that were <laughs> confined
1: to do some shipping of coal. I, I believe two, two... Villainous Yankees refused to obey an order, even though it was given by the executive officer. Yes,
0: so uh, there was one course to pursue, he says, and that was to punish the parties who refused to obey. I triced one fellow up, and the other said he would prefer going to work (laughs) rather than be dealt with. So that was good. The tricking up, uh, Whittle says, had a most wonderful effect. In two hours, the man begged to be let down as he
1: desired to ship. I would call that coercion somehow. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, and he, was a, he would then have signed a document that said that he had uh, shipped with, without, under, without being under any duress uh, whatsoever. Uh,
0: what, what Whittle has, uh, this is another thing that's caused him great anxiety and another thing that you really don't want to be thinking about when you've given up smoking, and that is that all of the crew that they originally hired had enlisted for only six months.
1: Yes, and we're, we're already a, a, a month and a half into that.
0: We're already a month and a half into that, and he's concerned that, of course, when the six months are up, that they'll all decide to, uh, to leave. His solution, which again shows um, his uh, moral flexibility, is um, he hopes that they can get them to a port somewhere, and then they'll all get drunk, spend all their money, <laughs> and then have to re-enlist again. Which I'm sure was based on a lot of past experience. <laughs> Probably quite a of lot thing. of
1: past experience with with sailors that uh, yes, they, they, they might be prone to uh, to doing such a thing.
0: The um the other thing that happened uh, during this time is they crossed
1: the equator. Yes. I was actually interested to uh, to read that because um, I'm, I'm an old sea dog myself, and um, I've crossed the equator and um, had the visit from King Neptune. Oh, except um, I was a passenger on a on a um, on on a, on a ship going from. Uh, England uh, to Australia at that time. What what year was this, Rob? This was in, it was in 1977 and it was. This actually must have been
0: about, and you did this not as a cruiser but as a passenger, is that right? Actually,
1: as a passenger because. As um, an
0: alternative to of getting in a plane and. and as, an,
1: as an alternative to getting in a plane. You,
0: that must have been one about the last times that you could actually go that, on a line. It, it
1: was actually the ship, uh, the ship I think was called the Oriana. It was actually the ship's last voyage and it was after that voyage broken up for scrap because uh, there was. There was a long tradition um, uh, in Australia of English immigrants coming by boat, and they were called ten-pound tourists and, and
0: ten-pound pounds. poms 10 pounds poms and, In and fact, our last two prime ministers, yes, our so, current
1: one and the previous one, were both. 10 so, so 10 it, it's worked wonderfully on at least fifty percent of occasions. Um, <laughs> and but again, this, this data. This, so, for, for for a couple of reasons, you'd come by boat. First of all, because back in the uh, post-war period, to probably about uh, the nineteen seventies. Um, plane travel was prohibitively expensive, uh, but the other thing was that, that if you because you were you were immigrating because you were picking up your life in the UK and moving to Australia, you, you, you would bring all of your your effects, and that was a lot uh, cheaply done accomplished uh, on ship, than it was um, on the by plane. Um, but well, now my family was Australian, so we weren't immigrating. But the reason we did it was because. Um, my father had travelled uh, with my mother to um, the UK when he was taking up his scholarship in Cambridge in the 1960s. But I think uh, my dad had some, because you know, they were, because I think they were travelling on a scholarship, they, they might not have been first class, but they were certainly second class. And at one point they dined at the captain's table. Yada, yada uh-huh. I think they must have been first class because I don't think you would do that. So they had quite romantic um, Memories. He probably
0: also was taking a great big pile of books, knowing your dad. Yeah, yeah as well.
1: That, that, that's exactly right. So, um, thirteen years later, um, uh, coming back from a, from another sojourn in England, they thought it would be a romantic thing to do, and it was in many ways. It was one of the great experiences of my life to to basically trace the the voyage of the Shenandoah as, as far as as far as Melbourne. Although, of course, um, we went through the Suez Canal. We did not go round the, uh, the Cape of Hope. But anyway, so um, when we crossed uh, into the equator, King Neptune did come on board. Uh, but uh, because I was 12 and because we were on passengers, we got a free ice cream. But you know what? On the Shenandoah, they uh, did not get a free ice cream.
0: No, they 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 did pretty much the uh the stuff you you see in 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 old time movies when uh, a ship of the line crosses the yeah. the equator they had king neptune come aboard and basically uh harass and bastardize anybody that hasn't uh now,
1: there was the other thing was that only Waddell and one other officer had ever in fact, crossed the equator so the entire ship's company were in the pro- had the job of bastardizing themselves <laughs> so Presumably, Waddell bastardised the first one. and then set him loose to uh, to do all the
0: interestingly. Uh, there was only one officer that managed to uh, escape, getting yes. um, his mouth filled with a wonderful what is described here as a wonderful mixture <laughs> of soup, grease, molasses, and stewed apples. And that was uh, can you guess which of the officers managed to?
1: I, I, th- I thought Whittle. I thought I thought it no, no, to...
0: Mister Whittle actually uh, he he copped
1: it. Yes. No, 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 no! It was
0: didn't. it was Lieutenant Lee. Oh, there you go. Yes, the uh, the nephew of Robert E. Somehow, yep. somehow they deigned not to rough him up the same way. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, doctor McNulty, the, the 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 doctor, the ship surgeon, he actually punched the barber in the face. <laughs> I
1: I, I (laughs) believe was (laughs) a a, a bit fond of the bottle.
0: uh, (laughs) Yes, his Irish blood could not stand it and he struck the barber and knocked him
1: sprawling full length on the deck. Which, of course, Whittle describes as rare sport. Well, if if an officer does that, or a gentleman, McDulty would have been as a a doctor. He He
0: did say, I am very glad it comes but once. Yes. So so there you go. So yes, they they gathered up all the crew and everybody... uh, Everyone was asked, where are you from? And woe be to the man who replies, for if he opens his mouth, it is filled with soup, grease and molasses. <laughs> and if you do not answer, their face is lathered with the same stuff and they go through a form of shaving with a large wooden razor. And after this... They start to pump and nearly drown you by filling your eyes and mouth and wetting you
1: through and through. Doesn't that sound like fun? Uh, that, that, that that sounds like a, a whole heap of fun. So so what with the crossing the line and with the tricing it sounds like there was a, yeah, a, a, a wonderful time on board. And now, towards the end of November, they were travelling down the coast of Brazil. So, um, yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, um, uh, but... Nary, nary a prize to be seen for the entire fortnight. They they ran
0: into the occasional ship, but every time it was yes, it was proven to be uh, from from not from the US. Sadly for them, uh,
1: and I believe they, they did run into in fact one ship that was uh, from a from a, a US port, but they ascertained that it was um, actually owned by a a southern sympathizer.
0: Yeah, and they they, they eventually worked out, I believe, by opening up the
1: mailbags. Yeah, well, which which, which and you would it. do. So they, they got through and they found a letter from the ship's owner basically saying, it's all a ruse. Thank <laughs> God we, we, we fooled those Yankees. And they went, oops. And they, they decided not to sink it, but they damaged it so much at that point that uh, it was a little bit... Uh, yeah, so they felt rather guilty at having done that to, to their own side. And I believe uh, Mr Whittle does not mention that occasion whatsoever. It's mentioned in... Um, Sea of Grey, by by, yes, um, yeah, it's
0: it's not here. I think he's far too concerned about the piece of glass. Yeah, he ate. Yes, yes. And uh, the doctors say it's been too long since it was swallowed for it for it not to have shown itself long since. And I kind of wonder how he worked that out. But anyway, um, presumably uh, it was passed at some point because Whittle then gets to write the rest of his. Rest of his journal well, so if we go all the way through to the current date, very sadly for them they, uh, they don 't get to capture another prize
1: well, look, given that they did capture many prizes, and also given that um, uh, you know, over the next few weeks uh, one hundred and fifty years ago, they, they did head across the great Australian Bight and had many an adventure. Uh, and I believe there's also something coming up called the Cape Town incident. The Cape Town incident. I'm looking South. forward to that I, one. I believe alcohol was involved. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, uh, with, uh, I, I, look, we're, we're going to have many episodes uh, yeah, later on where not a whole lot was happening. So uh, I'm sure we'll be able to look around the world of 1864, 1865 and find very many parallels with our own time that will be make interesting An interesting uh, podcast. But uh, for now, um, that's your lot for this week. This has been Shenandoah Down Under, Confederate Pirates Save the Whales by Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. I'm Mob.
0: See you later. Goodbye until next
1: time.